Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pod Save the Queen! Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the Queen and I have a very special guest with me today. I'm your host Anne Gripper and I am delighted to welcome to the show Tom Jennings who is executive producer of 8095 Films, an Emmy and Peabody Award winner but most excitingly for us, the man behind the documentary, Diana in her own words. So Tom, welcome to the show. And thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I guess it's been a, a lively last few weeks because this originally was a documentary that you made a few years ago, I'm guessing for the anniversary of Diana's death when it was 20 years on. And for anybody who hasn't yet seen the show, if you just give us a little flavor of how, how would you describe it to people? Well, it's um, very much how I pitched it to Andrew Morton who had the tapes of Diana, um, the show is, the film is uh, basically all about Diana told through her words only and news reports from the time covering Diana. So it's a first person story uh, that Diana told to a mutual friend on tape, mutual friend of hers and Andrew Morton's in 1991. And it was the foundation for Andrew Morton's 1992 book, Diana, Her True Story. And so it is told from her point of view and from the point of view of the media that was covering her at the time. Uh, but it is the story of her life, uh, starting with when she met Charles, um, all the way through to her tragic death in 1997. And it's it's quite extraordinary actually to hear her speaking at such an extended in such an extended and in such an incredibly personal way as well i was really struck by uh how she told her stories that we wound up using you have to remember that the tapes were made by a good friend of hers a guy named dr james colthurst who uh, was also friends with Andrew Morton, who was a royal reporter at the time. And uh, Diana had told James that she wanted to get her story out. And so the way they made the tapes was that um, Andrew Morton would write questions. Uh, he would give them to James Colthurst. He would literally ride his bicycle to Kensington Palace and would be let in because he was a friend of Diana's and he would bring with him a tape recorder and he would read the questions um, from Andrew Morton uh, to Diana and she would respond. Now the difference that you're getting in what you're talking about, Anne, is that um, her responses are very colloquial in, the na in their nature they're, they're, because she's talking to a good friend. So they have conversations, they have laughs, it's remarkable to hear her talk this way in kind of an off-the-cuff uh, style of storytelling, but she is talking to one of her good friends at the time. Um, Colthurst would then take those tapes and meet uh, Andrew Morton at a cafe somewhere, and he would uh, uh, hand, him, hand him the tapes, and Morton would sit down and listen to him, and, and talking with Andrew, who I've gotten to know since we did this film, it was uh, one of the most extraordinary things he'd ever heard. What we did was we took those tapes and we found images to marry to the story she telling. 
And those, uh, when you do that, it sounds as if Diana sat down in the narration booth and recorded the tapes for the film itself. So that's how we did it. And there's many instances that I could talk about and how we brought her words to life in a way that seems very real and genuine. And it was quite a smart way for her to do it as well, because it was absolute plausible deniability of, you know, have you ever spoken to Andrew Morton for this book? No, I haven't, because I may have been answering his questions, but I was talking to my friend. <laughs> That's correct. And they did that on purpose. Um, and Andrew Morton, if you recall, uh, from those years between 1992 and 1997, always denied that Diana had anything to do with it, um, to his credit, uh, because he was pilloried at the time for writing such a scandalous book, and it could not be true. And uh, after Diana's death, he did come out and say, yes, she was the source of the material and uh, even then people didn't believe him and he says well as a matter of fact i have these audio tapes and um, he released the transcripts uh, of those tapes and also uh, released a couple of small snippets to nbc news in 2004 and uh, people got to hear her maybe 10 seconds at a time with a lot of experts commenting on what she meant or what she was saying. And um, no one had ever heard the tapes in their entirety. And actually we only use a portion of the tapes. There's, <laughs> there's a lot more uh, that uh, uh, are on the recordings that are fascinating. And in some ways we'd like to think that we do a follow-up to Diana and her own words, but the film is so pure the way it is. I don't know that we could uh, top it. Because it's, I mean, it's two hours of her, you know, pouring her heart out essentially, yes. or giving giving her side of, you know, the the turbulence of of her marriage and and her own her own mental health issues, and speaking so sort of honestly and frankly about her bulimia and a, attempting to kill herself, whether it was a serious attempt or a cry for help or or what have you, you know, it was shocking to think of. You know, the, she. I mean, she drew very vividly the the difference between the fairy tale princess that people want and the that kind of fairy tale wedding day, and then she's saying it's the worst day of my life, and then all of this that's going on behind the scenes. It was. It, it's extraordinary to think about. And we did that on purpose, Andrea. You know, one. Uh, I, I can give you a little backstory on once we got the tapes. Uh, but I do have to tell you about how we got the tapes because it's an extraordinary story. But once once Andrew agreed, uh, we went through all the tapes. There are seven hours of uh, Diana speaking, and they were recorded over a period of about six or seven months in 1991 from late spring through the fall. And then the book came out the following year in 1992. Um, but we, bro uh, uh, we broke down the tapes into every story point that Diana talked about. And uh, much like a feature film, we had cards on our office wall of every story point that she discussed. And there were 140 story points in the seven hours of tapes. Some of them very minor, some of them extraordinary, like when she talked about her wedding day. What we did, the way we broke it down, and this is kind of like, uh, you know, uh, inside baseball as far as storytelling goes, is that we picked kind of the pillars of the story that everyone knows. And did she comment on it? Uh, she met Charles. Uh, they got married. They, they had William. They had Harry. Um, and so, we, you know, these were all the moments that we felt like we have to cover this uh, and we need her to comment on it. But then in listening to the tapes, there were all these other story points that became kind of the mortar between those bricks, things that people have never heard, stories that have been long forgotten. Uh, very early on in the film, if you'll recall, she tells this story about when she first went out with Charles in a black dress and uh, at the, the Goldsmith Hall. And one of the things we did was these mortar between the bricks story points 
we looked for images that exactly showed what was going on and we we found them and that's a good example and she tells the entire backstory about charles looking at her and saying you're not wearing that dress are you and uh, yeah the famous strapless <laughs> yeah. quite a lot of chests you know and she talks all about it and we had uh, both footage stills photographic stills and news reporting from the time and the news reporter is saying oh she looks stunning and she met uh, she met princess grace and and she taught and diana talks about thank god princess grace was there i didn't know wh whether to hold my handbag in my left hand or my right hand and uh we're, we were able to actually show all of those moments so we went through and we picked uh, not just the major moments that we have to as um, kind of journalist documentarians that you can't ignore that they got married, although the crown kind of brushed over their wedding day, which I found fascinating because she does describe it as the worst day of her life in the tapes. And when we first heard that, I just thought that was the most extraordinary thing. Um, you know, even if your marriage falls apart after many years, um, to talk about your wedding day itself, especially the fairy tale that everyone believed it to be, to hear her say uh, 10 years after the fact that it was the worst day of her life was extraordinary. So that's how we did it. And we followed Diana's story follows something, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, called the hero's journey, which is a motif of storytelling that we use a lot because it really does fit. It was made uh, uh, prominent by an American philosopher named Joseph Campbell. And the hero's journey is applied in, uh, in the storytelling world to just about any kind of major story motif you could follow. Star Wars, for example, follows the hero's journey where there's the young novice who has to venture out into the world, who needs a mentor to help educate them and how to fight the dragons. They have to take on various uh, problems along the way and if you follow Diana's story in our film, it really is the hero journey, hero's journey. But the only difference is that at the end, the hero triumphantly returns home. And in a sense, she did return home, but she had been killed and she had this triumphant return back to England and back to her home eventually with millions of people in the streets and the whole world was weeping. So um, Diana's story is the hero's journey. So tell us then, how did you come to tell this story? Because these tapes, I mean, goodness knows where Andrew Morton had been keeping them for whatever, 50, 20 odd years in a box under his bed or in a safe or up in the loft or who knows. So how did you, how did you come to get in touch with Andrew and have these tapes to turn into a film? But the story of the tapes is this. In 2016, uh, National Geographic that um, we do a lot of films for said, you know, next year is the 20th anniversary of Diana's passing. Um, and we do a style often, not always, but we've done a lot of this archive storytelling where there's no narrator and no interviews. And when done right and done well, it's very compelling because it puts you right in the moment of an, an event or a particular story from time. And we really enjoy that. It's very hard to do, as you can imagine, because you don't have what we call the crutch of a narrator to lean on. And um, so they said, uh, you know, there's everyone's going to be doing a Diana film in 2017 uh, for the anniversary of her death. And uh, could you do one of these no narrator, no interviews, uh, no narrator, no interview um, uh, shows for us? And I said, well, sure. We, you know, there's, there's so much on Diana that's out there. And they said, yeah, but we want you to find something new. And um, <laughs> I said, uh, well, you know, um, she is the most photographed woman in the world, probably still. And uh, I said, I don't know what's new, but uh, you know, I was a newspaper reporter in the United States prior to making documentary films. 
So um, I knew about Andrew Morton's book uh, uh, just from my knowledge as a reporter and an American. I'd never read it, but I knew about the book and the controversy around the book. And then I also knew that he wound up saying there's a bunch of audio tape of Diana telling these stories. So, you know, maybe I'm naive. Maybe, maybe I'm just the type of person that you never know until you ask. So I called uh, Andrew Morton's publisher in London, Michael O'Mara, and uh, he kindly, uh, I think, you know, because I was representing National Geographic at the time, he put me in touch with Andrew and we talked on the phone and uh, he was, Andrew was very pleasant. And he said, well, get in line, mate. I'll never forget it. You're about the 2000th producer to ask me about those tapes. And he was just going to, you know, I, I think at the time, or maybe he said later that he was going to go to his grave before the tapes would be released. And I said, Andrew, Andrew, wait, wait, this is different. We do this style. We do this format. There's no narrator and we're not going to interview anybody. It'll just be Diana telling her story. And there was this long, long pause. And I was waiting for him to say no. And he said, no one has ever asked me to do it that way before. And, and then he said, are you certain that's how you're going to do it? I said, absolutely. That's exactly how we're going to do it. We will let Diana narrate the story and no one else is going to chime in except news reporters from the time to give it context. And then there was another long pause. And he said, um, how soon can you be in London? And I live in Los Angeles. And I said, I'll be there as soon as I can. And I literally got on a plane about three days later, flew to Heathrow on an overnight, um, took the tube to uh, his publisher's office. It was pouring rain. I got there uh, early in the morning. Andrew and his publisher met me. Uh, for the first time, and they brought out the tapes, which are not in a box under his bed. They're in a safety deposit box at a tape. Uh, excuse me. They are in a safety deposit box at a bank. And for the next seven hours, I sat in Andrew's office, uh, Andrew's publisher's office, drinking tea with pouring rain. I, th I remember there was a skylight there. And so you could hear the rain. Can you imagine? You can hear the rain pounding. And he and I sat there and we listened to Diana like she was sitting in the room with us. And it was one of the most extraordinary days of my life. And we shook hands and made a, a handshake deal. You know, I said, okay, we'll be in touch. He wanted to be assured that the format would be as we discussed. I went back to Heathrow and I got on a plane and I flew back to Los Angeles. So I was there for probably 15 hours total. And we made an arrangement with Andrew to use his tapes. And um, he provided us with a copy and that's how it all began. So after your day of drinking tea and hearing the pounding rain and probably feeling quite tired after having landed that morning, but clearly being kept awake by this kind of extraordinary testimony. Like what had you come in thinking of Princess Diana or kind of what had been your traditional impressions of Princess Diana and mm. what was, what kind of, did anything immediately change for you or what impression did you take away from the tapes from that kind of mm. first hearing? Um, I only knew Diana through media. So I'd seen her public speeches. I was familiar with the now infamous Panorama interview. I'd only known her as the rest of the world had known her through media, occasion, you know, her land, work with landmines, uh, which I thought was extraordinary. Um, I liked her. Um, you know, I'm, as an American citizen, I, I thought she was bold and daring. Um, but what changed for me was um, her innocence. Uh, you forget how young 19 is. 
And I started to think, what was I doing when I was 19 years old? <laughs> and I, I certainly wasn't uh, dating a royal, that's for certain. So I, um, I, I, my opinion of her changed. She became a real person, basically. That's what she became for me. She didn't. Uh, she was no longer a media figure, even if we had not been able to use the tapes, and obviously we did. Um, for me, she became a person um, that you know. You realize, you know, there's the old adage here anyway that even the president puts on his uh, uh, pants one leg at a time, and you realize, despite her fame, she could laugh and tell a joke and. Uh, uh, very early on in the tapes, uh, as a, a brief aside, she talks about, you know, because she comes from a royal background herself, um, how her father would take her to Sandringham every Christmas. And she would be forced, as she, uh, the term she used, to watch the movie Chitty Chitty Bang Bang over and over again. And growing up, I loved Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Me too. <laughs> I, I, I knew all the words and I felt like, you know, it's almost like I was responding to her while we were listening to this, the tapes that rainy day. It was like, but Diana, I really liked that. <laughs> you know, it's almost like you want to, it was that conversational, the tone of the tapes and um, uh, my entire, not the chitty chitty bang bang part, although I disagree with her about chitty chitty bang bang. <laughs> but such a minor thing, but we did include it in the film, if you saw, and it was almost like, I want to let people know that she had a problem with that film. Um, it was just the little asides, the little moments, the conversational tone. She became real to me, a real person. And she is much more so now than uh, what I knew of her prior to here, prior to that day. It, the thing about her sort of age and how how young she was when she became engaged and married and you know in her late teens and how quickly how quickly everything happened in her life but that sense of her she's something otherworldly somehow about her talking about at school feeling like she was going to marry somebody in the public eye or she was destined for something different and needed to sort of keep herself tidy i.e not go off with boys and be naughty which was quite an interesting way of putting it um but you know that sort of almost inner conflict between her of feeling like she was destined for something else but that actually in some ways it was really it was really difficult to handle with that spotlight. I mean, I think it's fair to say, like as a journalist watching it, I felt quite uncomfortable with how things used to be back in the day with the kind of the level of pursuit that she had sort of throughout, as soon as they were on dates, you know, people camped outside the, the kindergarten and everybody sort of chasing her car and all the cameras and, and people walking along the street and trying to vox popper and put, you know, put a, the, the, the sort of the, um, the TV reports who was like, well, there'll be some news soon. I mean, it was bad enough when I was coming back from my holidays, you know, I'd been in a, in a long time relationship with a man who is very happily now my husband. Well, I hope he's very happily my husband. I'm very happily his wife, but um, you know, I'd come back from my holidays and at work people say, oh, any news? And I'd be like, go away. But to have that, have people sort of constantly asking you when you go to get married, it's bad enough when it's your mates, but when it's like the world's media camped and you've only seen this like a couple of times and uh, hardly anything's happened. It's just, it's, it's extraordinary. So the, the kind of that press element did feel very uncomfortable for me looking back at how things used to be and you know I do I you know obviously part of the reason that things have changed so much is is how Diana ended up dying um yeah. drunk driver in the car but pursued by paparazzi obviously is part of that um sort of end for her so I think that that press side of things was was really quite extraordinary. But then some of the things that they ended up doing, you know, the sort of Prince Charles looking so shifty when Angela Rippon was asking him questions in one of the interviews. And I can't remember what, what it was exactly they were talking about, which was sort of, sort of something quite happy and personal. So the their level of engagement with the media did 
provider side as well, but it's that kind of like that outside um, independent pursuit, if you like, that just felt so tricky. Yes, <laughs> to answer your question, it was tricky. You could tell very early on in the news reporting that uh, she was probably, well, she was overwhelmed, but in a way flattered. Wow, all these people all of a sudden want to pay attention to me. Um, and you could see some of that, but in retrospect for her talking in 1991 about what was going on, it was really hell, you know, when she was looking back on it. Ev, you know, uh, she talked about the girls that she shared her flat with mates, um, how they were constantly being put upon. They wanted to know more Diana information. The reporters would uh, rent. They did rent a flat across the street from where she lived so they could take pictures through the windows. Uh, and then, you know, you see her evolve and change. And um, uh, one of the things that we put in toward the end of the film that was very much on purpose was she gave an interview in South Africa near the uh, end of her life uh, with, uh, I believe it was Reuters. And she's on camera talking about, um, you know, her, uh, her charity work, her work with, um, uh, you know, landmines and things like that. And you can see a grown up Diana. And again, this is part of the hero's journey that we followed. You see her grown up. And what we did is we use the outtake where she stops the interview and she says, you know, let me do that again. And then if you compare it to very young Diana, where she's sitting at uh, the side of Charles and they're talking about, um, uh, love and whatever love means, uh, it's, she's a completely different person. She's evolved. There's been a metamorphosis of Diana, the person that the world knows. And we wanted to show that. And uh, funny, you know, everyone keys in on the interview where, um, uh, where Charles says uh, on camera, whatever love means, uh, that famous day. But uh, one of the things that I was struck by is that the day he proposed to her at Windsor, uh, she said, oh, I love you so much. I love you so much. And he said, then whatever love means. So it actually had been said by Charles prior to that famous on-camera interview. Um, and she had to learn and grow from that and uh, change and evolve. And by the end of our film, you see how very different she is from the 19-year-old kind of besotted young lady that is caught up in this whirlwind of uh, press following her. And they were relentless, uh, you know, because Prince Charles was supposedly the world's most eligible bachelor and the person that he would marry would become the next queen of England. So obviously there was great interest. And uh, Diana pops into the picture and she seemed to be just the perfect fairy tale. And most people believe that until... Uh, the early 1990s the thing i don't think i had registered because i don't know when did i become aware of, i probably mainly became aware of diana and charles more when they were getting when things were already going wrong so i was i'm a i'm a 1980 baby so um that was my kind of where i started probably to become a bit more aware of of them and you know i don't think i'd registered that in the earlier years of their marriage she had sometimes been portrayed as being difficult or the one that was the problem almost because you know now she is very much cast in the light of the victim to Charles's enduring love with Camilla and that she kind of never had a, a look in and here she was she was a devoted mother and she did all of these amazing humanitarian things you know potentially unfairly that she was cast as as the one who was being difficult but the the idea that that was even presented about her when she is very much kind of you know she's very much on a pedestal these days of of what her sort of her place is if you like um she is and we had to be very careful if you notice at the top of our film uh, we put in text that said this is one side of the story it's her side of the story and um uh it's it's we wanted to make her um uh, you know, by using the tapes, 
not be so much of a as a victim, but you know, uh, here's what's going on in my life. Let me tell you, my good friend James, as I'm answering these questions for Andrew Morton. Um, let me tell you my side of the story. And you know, there's uh, the adage that uh, there's his side of the story, her side of the story, and and somewhere in the middle is the truth. And uh, um, I think there's a lot to that, but in a way she had not been, before we did what we did, she had not been given a voice to tell her side of the story in the way that she has in our film. And um, so we found that to be a way to just let her speak. Granted, she was speaking in 1991. The marriage was definitely on the rocks. Things were falling apart, uh, which she readily admits to. But um, no one had ever heard her just explain herself in the way that uh, she does in our film. Uh, you, you could argue perhaps she did in uh, the Panorama interview with Martin Bashir. But, you know, that was an on-camera interview with a journalist. And she was, my guess is, giving answers that she thought um, – the world should hear at the time. Whereas with us, it is very much her talking with a friend about her story. And it was a, a different time as well, 1991 versus the Panorama interview in 1995. So um, I, I, I think the portrayal of her throughout the years, uh, you know, because she's been put on a pedestal, she's been knocked off the pedestal. Uh, there was no really effort of understanding Diana the person as much as Diana the icon. Uh, we wanted Diana the person to, sit, to tell her story. And we were very clear that this is her side of the story. You know, take from it what you will, but it is her explaining her story in a way that you've never heard before. And so, we, you know, we, we tried to make sure that she explained the major events that went on in her life, but also allowed her to have human moments like the chitty, chitty, bang, bang one that she describes as a child. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think when someone becomes that famous, it's really hard to pin them down to exactly, well, who are they? And, you know, uh, you know, what do they think of when they close their eyes at night before drifting off to sleep? It's very hard to get close to a person with that kind of fame and understand them. Um, because, you know, in some ways, for, uh, especially in America, um, she, she did represent this fairy tale. And, you know, one of the things that we all grew up with here, and I'm sure it's true in the UK, is Arthurian legends and, you know, someday my prince will come. And, you know, all of that feeds into our ideal of what this person should be. And um, when you find out that the fairy tale is not true, uh, it goes against something within our own DNA, if you will, in that, you know, we all believe in the fairy tale, uh, you know, and we, we don't want to believe that it was a lie or it was tarnished in some way, or it was never really true in the first place. And so I think uh, even as adults, we want to fight the notion that there could be something wrong with you know, what we've been raised uh, uh, as children to believe that fairy tales do come true. And I find that an interesting notion because uh, there are still people who cannot believe that Diana um, was that Diana was uh, you know someone whose fairy tale ended up in ruin and um, uh, sadly it did and I think the problem is partly like she she had the information before she got married I think this is this is something I feel very kind of I feel very weird about it all because in in today now I think Charles and Camilla are really well matched I think you know Camilla seems to have settled into her her role in the royal family really well they've done a really good job of managing to 
build that up and make her you know, make her make her and Charles publicly acceptable. Obviously, anytime the crown reappears or a, a film like this reappears, then the poll ratings tend to go down. Clarence House has closed off comments on their social media at the moment because people are so horrible. We've had somebody turn up on our Instagram leaving little snake emojis all over it on a picture of Camilla because obviously this this still feels very present for a lot of people always. And then it gets recooked up for, you know, anytime there's anything about it on the TV. But to a certain extent, that is, that is how they live their life. And they do, they have to deal with the fallout of that. However, I'm also in that phase of just like, what would have happened if Diana had said, I'm not doing this. This is not okay. Ladies or gentlemen, listening to this just because your face is on the tea towel if he or she is not worthy of you does not mean you have to marry them i'm afraid and um i just i didn't think much of a uh, i think it was her sister said bad luck dutch your face is on the tea towel now it's like you know if my sister ever came to me that is not what i'd be telling her i'd be like right let's we're off we're we're going somewhere else let's just escape the country and i was thinking you know what would do more damage to the monarchy would it would it have been better if they just said actually no this was this was a bad idea um i'm too you know it, it, to a certain extent it depends on how um how willing to play along with the public narrative diana may or may not have been of i'm too young it was i was caught up in a whirlwind it was it felt so amazing but i am just too young i don't think that this is the right thing i don't want to let people down you know, I'm really sorry. Like if that had happened and that just whole episode hadn't, hadn't gone on, but the, you know, the idea of anybody going into their wedding day, not just with actual doubts, but with actual knowledge of what, um, what their future husband's kind of love situation really was. And then seeing the object of that love as you are walking down the aisle. I mean, I've got happy memories of spotting my friends with big smiles and big hats. That's like, that's what a wedding be. it's not like spotting the other woman and I know that um you know the aristocracy and the royal family are a, a little bit more they tend to date within circles so you do quite often get exes appearing at the wedding I mean it's not you know it's not unusual in real life but it does seem to happen slightly more maybe we just pay more attention because everyone likes a good bit of gossip ahead of a royal wedding but I was just like you know how what what do you think would have happened do you think they could have called the whole thing off you know that is one of the most fascinating questions that um, I've heard in a long time about Diana and her story. What would have happened? And uh, uh, a corollary to that is knowing what she knew, she still went through it, through with it. She still, and then she saw Camilla sitting at the wedding, uh, you know, inside the church at the wedding. What would have happened uh, you know, it would have been a huge scandal, but it probably would have blown over. And don't forget, uh, Charles and Camilla were in love. You know, God bless them. But the rules of the monarchy at the time were such that they could not get together. And the monarchy has this interesting history of uh, people uh, being in love uh, and uh, I'm thinking of the uh, the King uh, and Wallace Simpson. You know, the Queen. You know, in a sense, the Queen had to witness uh, her father become king because um, he had to step in for his brother who abdicated the throne. So she was, and then all of the issues with Princess Margaret and wanting to marry uh, someone who was divorced. It's you know, it's it's almost like you know they their emotions. I think um, there's a radio announcer. We found some great radio that people probably hadn't heard in twenty or thirty years about Diana, where uh, the radio announcer says, "You know, we like to think that people marry for love, but with the royals, that's not necessarily the case." And um, I think the story of Diana and Charles. Uh, illuminates that. Uh, so if she, but don't forget she was 19, what, going on 20. Uh, the pressure she was under, um, 
for her to, you know, when her sisters told her at Clarence house the night before the wedding, you know, too late Dutch, your face is already on the tea towel. And as an aside, we found images of the tea towel to <laughs> illuminate that, which I found fascinating and, and uh, very purposely done, you know, to put that in there the way we did. Um, it would have been a huge uproar, but I think it would have died down. Uh, Diana would become the person who walked away from a royal marriage, who walked away from most likely being the Queen of England. She probably would have been respected for it. Eventually, she may have been uh, hounded uh, by it for a while. Uh, but Charles probably would have gone on and eventually figured out a way to marry Camilla, which he did. But it's a fascinating way to think about how history, uh, what you mentioned, Anne, how history would have played out differently if a 19-year-old girl would have said no. And um, it kind of gives you, at least for me, it gives me chills to think about it. You know, what if she had said no? And would she have said no publicly because she's not old enough, she's not ready, they need more time? Or would she have said no because she public, publicly stating because Charles doesn't love me? I mean, but you look at the images of her as this 19-year-old, you know, giggling and happy. And, you know, she too believed in the fairy tale, didn't she? like we all do. And so perhaps she thought uh, maybe he'll change. Maybe something will be different. Maybe we'll grow together. And I think they did in some ways, but uh, there was always the underlying aspect that um, Charles really didn't love her the way he loved someone else. And listeners in a parallel universe, let us know how that all worked out when she, when she decided to not go through with the wedding, because that would be a you know interesting thing in parallel universe. I think you should like create a series for Netflix based on Diana says no, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, it's, it's like um, there's the the musical and Juliet, isn't it? Of Romeo yes. and Juliet, and Juliet is like actually no, we're far too young to do this. So yes. someone else has clearly got there first. There's no, there are yeah. no such things as original ideas anymore. I, I did want to explain, since we you mentioned The Crown and, some, and Netflix here, I did want to uh, explain that after we did the film, I didn't fin quite finish the story. Um, Andrew Borton lets us use the tapes, uh, but they come out, uh, our film came out in August of 2017, along with about 35 other films. And sadly, another one with the same title that was done for Channel 4, called Diana and Her Own Words, where they used the tapes made by her voice coach, Peter Settlin, uh, which were videotapes. Um, and there were some intimate moments that she shared with him. However, they weren't anything like the Andrew Morton tapes. Uh, and, and, and Diana had intended those tapes the, the information in those tapes to be made public, obviously, because she was giving all that information to Andrew Morton for his book. But so our film came out and it did okay. And some people noticed uh, at the time, but it didn't have the attention that it has right now. And after I think a year, about 18 months uh, uh, ago, um, National Geographic moved it over to Netflix and, and this is above my pay grade. I don't understand how the, you know, how they move things around. They, they, they licensed it to Netflix uh, long before season four of the crown came along. And then uh, season four of the crown comes along and God bless Netflix. They marry it on their web pages. You know, you know, when you're looking at Netflix, your homepage. Oh, if you like The Crown, you should watch this. And all of a sudden, this thing is taken on a life of its own. And um, not only that, 
the uh, uh, some uh, uh, royals or people in the British government had started calling for the crown to have a label of fiction. I'm sure you're much more familiar with this than I am, but you know I've certainly read about it uh, because certain things are, uh, uh, you know, you can't say exactly what people were saying in a room, uh, you know, so it must be fiction. And then Netflix responds on Twitter and Instagram, putting up like, oh, all the answers you need are in Diana and her own words. And they put a clip of Diana confronting Camilla. I'm like, dear God, how did, how did we wind up here? Now we're being used. So the Crown's obviously given this whole other life to your doctor documentary but what have you made of the crown and their portrayal on of season four so far well i haven't watched all of season four and i've i've looked at several of the episodes i was surprised that they didn't do more with the wedding uh to be honest i i found it interesting that um diana was uh, dressed as a nymph uh you know for theater when she first and you know that's i know that to not be true, but in a sense, you know, they were taking license with the idea, you know, she met him when she was 14 or 15, very young, because Charles was dating Diana's sister, Sarah, and a lot of people either don't know that or had forgotten that. And uh, so there's certain liberties that are were taken along the way, uh, but the actress who, portrays Diana, uh, Emma Corrin. Um, uh, she says she watched our film a dozen or 15 times to get the intonation of Diana uh, and to better understand who she is. And I think she does a, a bang up job, as you say. And um, I like it. It is, it is entertainment. And I think they do take some license along the way. Uh, my only uh, big surprise so far uh, and what I've seen is, gee, you know, the wedding day was such a huge event. And if they've watched our documentary, which I believe they have uh, prior to releasing uh, season four, uh, when she calls it the worst day of her life, I mean, it, it would have been fascinating to see the doubt in her eyes as she's uh, as, as Diana says in our film, of being a lamb to the slaughter. So um, I find it good fun. Um, in some ways, I enjoyed the earlier seasons more. There's something about how they brought the queen to life very early on that um, uh, I thought was remarkable. Um, I'm very curious to see where they're going with season five. Uh, I can only imagine where it's going to wind up. But um, uh, by the way, our, and, uh, our film now is, I've just found out yesterday, is migrating off of Netflix um, on January 15th. It's the last day you can see it on Netflix. But National Geographic is owned now by Disney, and it's part of Disney+. Plus. It's already on Disney Plus, so people who still can't catch it, uh, they can if they get Disney Plus. It's already living over there, so oh, yeah. it will in three years have been on three major platforms, um, and uh, I had no control over any of that. <laughs> I just made a film for National Geographic. <laughs> Serendipity. Um, just finally, I'd like to. There were various bits looking at uh, the film that kind of I felt echoed really forward to now where you could see change in the royal family or sort of the, the younger generation whether that's down to time passing difference in the relationships or or what have you and I just thought it was it was quite interesting because I, I know there was the bit where Diana sort of says you know I am changing she sort of says I am changing the royal family quietly sort of behind the scenes that she is trying to change some of those things and we talked a bit earlier about that first engagement that Diana was at and that feeling of not really knowing what she was doing and she was obviously thrown straight into it she'd had no sort of real dating before becoming engaged to sort of get used to the idea and be be prepared although she was 
aristocratic essentially anyway so maybe had a, had some kind of a sense of what what is going on because i know that is something that always royal fans are kind of interested in is you know have kate and megan had some kind of preparation with how to handle all of this kind of thing and i think in the finding freedom book megan the sort of an, uh, an illusion that actually she didn't get perhaps as much training as as she was expecting that she might or I, i've kind of always felt that she never sort of had formal lessons training but actually just being around that environment people are going to be telling you bits and pieces as you you go along but i i wasn't there so i can't i can't say exactly what was happening but obviously that that's kind of my my feeling on that and then the the differences in the weddings and those moments and I, was, I was talking about Angela Rippon asking the questions earlier or and Charles looking shifty it was when she was talking about how it is how important it is when you're making your vows and that they made this sort of um dais almost so that they could feel like they were separate and in a in a moment when they were making their vows and then you watch them making their vows and they they're making them to the bishop the archbishop they're not looking at each other there's no sense of sort of intimacy or sort of little moments i mean yes you can he's kind of helping her get the train out of the carriage when they arrive at buckingham palace but it doesn't you don't get that sort of sense of him wanting to just keep saying to her all of the time of like you look beautiful or the the things that we do now is you know getting the lip readers out on royal wedding day to see what william said to harry and harry said to william and william said to kate and harry said to megan and those little intimate moments you didn't get any I didn't feel you got any sense of of that and that it was sort of presented and they were just they were just there and then even you know they seem to still be doing public engagements in the run-up to the wedding in a much more formal sense than I think we have now and seem to be spending half of their honeymoon with like other people and going straight on a tour and you know when Diana's saying about the trip on the yacht we survived that all right it reminds me of Megan sort of saying about you know it's not enough just to survive you've got to thrive and you know Diana's very frank talking about all of her mental health challenges so sort of bulimia from getting engaged and throwing herself down the stairs when she was pregnant um what else did she talk about the sort of postnatal depression she had all of these various different issues that she was struggling with um we can only assume hugely exacerbated by being in a fishbowl with a man who was in love with someone else you know she may if she'd been married to reg the window cleaner she may have had exactly the same issues who knows who knows but in a in a very different environment but you know the that sense of actually maybe you know maybe this did speak to harry's decision or harry and megan's decision that you know if if we're not happy actually it's not worth it we do have to get out the thing we have to look after ultimately is ourselves our health our family our happiness because the level of energy that diana talking about sort of putting a front on and turning it on for the crowds and then sort of being exhausted and going home and crying or whatever or crying in the car or barely being able to get the amount of energy she was pouring it into other people and i think probably people get a very fractional sense of that feeling when they've spent a day on on zoom calls in meetings and you've got to be kind of always up and always bouncy and then come to the end of the day and you go and just absolutely (laughs) collapse just that I just I just felt that actually her experience you can see that things have changed now in the royal family for whatever reason I agree I think and I think Diana planted those seeds in the boys. Uh, and she says so in our film, you know, one thing that we had to be very careful with is that the, uh, the tapes were made in the summer fall of 1991. Uh, she, and the book came out in 1992, but she did not pass until 1997. And, uh, however, National Geographic said, well, we need to keep the story going. Cause at first blush, I said, well, the story ends, this story with the tapes, the story ends when the book comes out because that's the end of the tapes. 
And they said, well, you know, can we figure out a way? And so that's why you see a lot more news reporting in the final act of the film. But also we were very, very, very careful in choosing some of Diana's words to put after the fact, after the tapes were made, because we were in a sense extrapolating forward um, her thoughts um, that were recorded at a prior time. And one of the things that we, toward the end that we talk about is especially she talks about William and uh, subtly changing the monarchy from within. And I think one of the lessons that she left them, and uh, you know, I, I, I can only speculate from what I've heard from her studying the story a lot more now, having done this film, and then watching what's been happening with uh, um, the royals since, especially as Harry and uh, William have come of age and gotten married, is that one thing that Diana was about toward the end of her life was being her own person. And that's what we tried to show in our film. And uh, there's always this sense with royals, and again, I'm speaking from an American outside looking in, but the, you know, duty and country come first, and uh, you must make great sacrifices for duty and country. And I think um, William is, is certainly moving forward uh, with a lot of that, although I do get the sense that he is just keen. Uh, Kate are establishing themselves as their own people. And I think Harry and Meghan have just taken that to a whole nother level. And, uh, you know, I can relate to them in one way in that uh, my mother died when I was eight years old. And, uh, you know, I, I was the oldest of four children and it was, it was devastating. And in many ways it still is. And you hear, oftentimes you'll hear people say, oh, you know, that was so long ago, you should get over it. But as a young boy losing your mother at a young age, um, I kept that in mind when we made this film um, for them, because uh, I didn't want people to think that we were exploiting Diana at the expense of her memory. We were truly giving her a voice and to see where they're at now in comparison to where, when their mother left them, I think many aspects of what she wanted for them, they're both living out in different ways. And um, uh, I think that may be her greatest legacy is that even though she left them so, you know, in, uh, so, um, so early in their young lives, um, whatever piece of her and who she was and what she represented to them as their mother is carrying on. Now, people may not agree with certain aspects of what's going on with the two of them, um, but uh, when you lose your mother at a young age, it never really goes away. And uh, um, the best you can do is hold on to the best parts of uh, who your mother was and um, what she meant to you and um, the lessons that she gave you before she left this world. So uh, my hope for them is, I don't know that they've seen the film. Um, I know that in my case, I, uh, I've had forgotten my mother's voice after a few years after she died. And one of my uncles found a bunch of real to real recordings about 20 years after she died. And I was able to hear her voice again for the first time. And it was very different than what I imagined it to be. I, I thought she would sound like Ariel from Disney, you know. <laughs> I'm, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. She sounded like a Cleveland girl. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it, it meant so much to me. And, and granted, I'm sure perhaps she left recordings for them too uh, that we'll never know of. But uh, this would be the next best thing. And... Um, I think her setting, her blazing a trail and trying to keep the monarchy in mind while becoming her own person, I think you're seeing that playing out with the boys today. And I wish them uh, well in what they're pursuing. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fascinating talking to you about a 
really fascinating film. Um, if you can speak to the nice people at Disney Plus and see if see if they'll connect up our podcast with your film, so it gets so you know if you like if you like this, you might like that. You know, well, got to got to ask the question. You know, who knows what might happen, and we'll have the same serendipity. I will get on it right away, <laughs> and and I'm serious. I will. I'll ask. Oh, them. amazing! Um, are you on Twitter or Instagram, where our lovely followers can yeah, follow you? Yeah, my company is, and I am. I'm on. Uh, uh, my company is 1895 films um, at uh, that's at 1895 films on Twitter. And my, uh, my personal one is uh, at TJ 1895. So, so and Instagram is the same for, uh, for both of us. So we will all be following you on there and I'll add you to our pod save guests lists on Twitter where our followers can um, can check out other fabulous people who have been on the show. Um, so thank you again so much for joining us and listeners, thank you to you as well. I hope you have found it an interesting and diverting hour and look forward to hearing what you thought of the show. Tell us over on Instagram or Twitter at pod save and leave us a review on iTunes if you get a moment. We always love to hear what you have to say. But, well, I think we're done for today. So stay safe, stay well, and until next time... Pod Save the Queen! 